Every 4th of July, we uh, celebrate our Declaration of Independence. We informed England, listen, we got things figured out. We no longer want to kind of fit in your colony system. So what we're going to do is we're declaring our independence. And we've discovered some things. We told the rest of the world, including England, we discovered that our Creator has endowed us with life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And so certainly as Americans, we've got life, don't we? We've got liberty. It's that pursuit of happiness deal, though. That's where we're running some problems and some trouble. It's not going so well. I mean, let me tell you what this kind of looks like. You know, we're just like, ah, man, I'm just trying to get through life. If I could just get a raise, boy, that next raise, then I'd feel like I've arrived. Or, you know, if I can get the promotion or, you know, I just need that new thing, that new toy, that new dress. If I had that new dress, man, it would be glorious, right? For me and the rest of humanity. And, or, you know, you just have this mind that if I get these next things, if I have this product, I'll, I'll be happy, whether it be a $2 bottle of lotion or it's got something like a house that might cost me a couple million dollars. You're just thinking if I just get it, if I change jobs, you know, if I get a new job, things will be better. You know, I think I've decided that it's where I live. If I lived in a different part of the country, things would be so much better. And, of course, you know, you uproot the family and you get away from that job that's really holding you back and only to discover what? Man, my new job has the same old problems my old job did, and now my kids aren't happy, and frankly, I didn't know the weather would be so bad here in the middle of nowhere. And so we, we yet, we're trying to find a sense of well-being and purpose, identity, peace, happiness. There's a guy by the name of Lecrae. He's a two-time Grammy Award-winning Christian rap artist. Uh, I think many of you are probably familiar with him. Oh, wow, we got some big fans here, you know. So he's, he's up there at Denton Bible, really good guy. Maybe he was here, maybe that was him, I don't know. And I tell you, this guy has officially what we'd say is blown up, okay? He has got a lot of influence, way beyond just the bounds of, of Christian circles. He's sold more than a million albums. He's got his own record label. Um, he's pretty impressive. In his book that he released last year called Unashamed, there it is, he gets deeply personal. It talks about some serious issues in his life like childhood abuse, uh, drug use, alcoholism, um, a stint in rehab, the pain of abortion, and an unsuccessful suicide attempt. And yet, along the way, God and his goodness and grace gives him just this unwavering faith. And this guy is really standing out as a testament of what it means to know Christ. In this book, he writes this, quote, In college... I wanted to do it all. I wanted Greek letters, so I pledged. I didn't want to lose my street cred, so I was near enough to those who were about that life. I didn't want to look too irreligious, so I grazed the pastors of the religious crowd. I wanted to be taken seriously, so I kept the activist crowd close. But life was too hard not to enjoy it, so I ran with the party crowd. The problem was, I was one person walking many paths with no clear, real destination. I did not have a purpose. And he goes on to write, See, in college, I was trying to throw a bowl of spaghetti at the wall, hoping that purpose stuck to the wall of clarity from the myriad of things I pursued. i got a question for you. Can this world really give you lasting joy and purpose? Can it? We think, well, you know, listen, if I had all the wealth of like Bill Gates... Or uh, Warren Buffett, <laughs> I'd have whatever piece was out there, man, I'd have it because I'd have all the money, right? Or perhaps if I had the success of like Oprah or Martha Stewart, then I would have arrived and things would be okay. Or if 
you know, if I had the brains of like Condoleezza Rice or Os Guinness, why then, you know, I would really be well. And we really think that. So these things are outside our grasp, but we sure are like, boy, if I was just more like them, everything would be wonderful and I'd have joy and purpose. Uh, you know, a lot of you are like, well, like, listen, I bet the answer in church is to say, no, that's not really it. But I'd sure like to try, right? Give me a shot at that. Well, I want to test that out. I want to find out if you have a lot of money, if that really or not is the answer. Well, I'll tell you this. There is a guy that had all the privilege and took this to the highest of levels. He had everything you'd want. He had more resources, enormous wealth, significant influence. He had a bunch of wives. He had everything the world says you need to really be happy, to really find peace, to find contentment. He was the third king of Israel. His name is King Solomon. And he went after it. Now, he, he had all these things, but one thing he didn't always have was a reason for living. King Solomon, when you study his life in those first 11 chapters of 1 Kings, he's kind of like a guy that just keeps climbing the ladder, man. He's like one of those exceptionally gifted, highly driven individuals. You might be able to relate to this. You might be sitting next to one right now, and you're going after with everything you've got. And by the time he climbs to the very top, one of the things he didn't have was a reason for living. To him, it's like, man, I got here, and I think the, the only logical conclusion here is to jump off it. And the first 11 verses, as we started this book last week in Ecclesiastes, he starts talking about why life seems so meaningless. He looked at human history, physical nature, and human nature. And by the time you get to chapter 1, verse 12, he's going to give kind of a top-line summary. This top-line summary basically says this, the ideals of the world become idols that always fail. Let's take a look at it. Verse 12, chapter 1. I, the preacher have been king over Israel in Jerusalem. So here he's talking about uh, the fact that he is a king in Jerusalem, and he says, I've, I've got it all. He's reminding everyone. Solomon is saying, listen, if anybody had the resources to t- test everything out there, it's me. And I want you to know that I did just that. And I set, verse 13, my mind to seek and explore by wisdom. Like I'm going to engage fully all my mental faculties concerning all that has been done under heaven. It is a grievous task which God has given to the sons of men to be afflicted with. So he says, I'm going to gauge fully my mind, and I am going to explore these things. Now, he refers to God not in his covenantal name, Yahweh, where the the one true God establishes a covenant relationship with the people of Israel and reveals, I got a personal name, and is I am who I am, Yahweh. No, he uses the the name for God, Elohim, which speaks of the sovereign, supreme God. And he's saying that God has given to men, humanity, things that are afflicting. It's a grievous task, and I want you to know that I pursued it with everything that I had. In fact, I, I find that it to be very difficult. You see where he says, given to the sons of men? You see that in verse 13? That should be better translated, sons of Adam. That's what it is. You see, uh, when Adam, God creates Adam and Eve, he places them in a garden. It is perfect. They have relationship with God. They have responsibility. They They have the ability to connect with God in very deep, intimate ways. There were no philosophic problems in the garden. 
Adam and Eve knew who they were, why they were here. They enjoyed perfect relationship with God. They were in touch with infinite reality. They had absolute answers for creation. They had purpose in life. They understood the distinctiveness between male and female. There was none of that sort of confusion out there. They understood their relationship with the animals. They weren't like confused, like, I think we came out of this ape here, but I'm not totally sure. No, none of that stuff. But yet when Adam sinned, when he failed to believe God and failed to take him at his word, you know what happened? It plunged him and all of his descendants into darkness. Once once was clear, understanding, enjoyable life with God. All of a sudden they're out of the garden and they are out of answers. All of a sudden they're not so sure why they're here, what they are to do. Distinctiveness between male and female. I mean, confusion reigns because sin had taken over. And that leaves humanity just trying to scratch out some sort of existence. Trying to basically find some sort of scrap of meaning in this machine of the world. And Paul says, Solomon says, listen, I, it's vanity. All the works, you see that in verse 14? I have seen all the works which have been done under the sun. And behold, all is vanity, striving after the wind. All the works, the philosophies, the structures, the schools, the centers of learning, um, the military might, the accumulation of navies, the works of art, the ideals. I, I want you to know when I looked at all the works of men, all that is done under heaven or under the sun, they're used rather synonymously. I want you to know that I found it, what? Verse 14, vanity. Literally, it's like fleeting. It is futile. It's interesting, the word vanity is also used in the Old Testament of idols. Where you take, uh, whether it be stone or a piece of wood that you carve up real nicely, maybe you paint it, whatever, and you try to create that to be your God, idols are vanity. They simply cannot deliver. He says, it's all just striving after the wind. You see that in verse 14? It's all like we could like cue up that Kansas song. Remember it? Dust in the wind. All we are is dust in the wind. You heard it? I, I've heard it too, yeah. When Kerry Livgren wrote that, the band named Kansas, this is the verse that he based that on. It's all just dust in the wind. And we come to verse 15, and this is a really important verse. You might want to underline it or highlight it. Look what, look what Solomon writes. What is crooked cannot be straightened, and what is lacking cannot be counted. What this proverb tells us is this. There is something fundamentally wrong with the world, and humanity cannot resolve it. There is something wrong in this life, and there is not a thing that you can do about it. Not your abilities, your experiences, your intellect. There is nothing that you can do. And so what happens is the world offers ideals. They are perverted, and they are crooked, and they are twisted. They are the best that you can do with life under the sun. And the world offers these ideals that become idols. And they're the world's ideals for finding joy and purpose. And that's what you find beginning in verse 16. And I want you to know that Solomon pursued the ideals with a passion. Likely, you and I have done the exact same thing, or better yet, you're doing it right now. These ideals are highly alluring, 
and they really explain much of what we see in society. So let's take a look at these world world ideals and how Solomon goes after it. And the first one is intellectualism. Intellectualism has the idea that you devote yourself to intellectual pursuits and the idea that if by learning, you will ultimately find answers to the most important questions of life, where you'll have meaning and joy and purpose and peace and fulfillment. So Solomon says, listen, the answers, they've got to be in intellectualism. So look what he does. It's like he's opening up his journal to us. Verse 16, I said to myself, behold, I have magnified and increased wisdom more than all who were over Jerusalem before me. And my mind has observed a wealth of wisdom and knowledge. And I set my mind to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. And I realized that this also is striving after the wind because in much wisdom there is much grief and increasing knowledge results in increasing pain. Solomon was not the first king of Jerusalem. You've got uh, David prior to that. Uh, There were about several hundred years worth of kings at this Jebusite fortress before Israel took it over. And Solomon says, listen, I had more wisdom than all of them. This is a wisdom that God gave me. And when he's talking about the pursuit of wisdom here, it's not the pursuit of wisdom as revealed by God, but it is wisdom, the wisdom of life under the sun to fundamentally understand why things are, how they function. What do we see and observe? How do they relate to each other? What actually takes place in these interactions? And he says, I want you to know I gave myself to it. He explores philosophy and science and religion and literature and psychology, sociology, logic, rhetoric. He sees everything that is out there and he gives himself to it fully. He is an academic beyond academics. And he he says, verse 17, I set my mind to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. It's not like he thought like, Being crazy, madness and folly is like a viable alternative. What he's doing is he's exploring what you can learn, everything that is offered in intellectual pursuits. And to better understand this earthly wisdom, he takes the alternative to it, the opposite, folly, craziness. So he can better understand this wisdom. He says, you know what? I realized that it's just foolishness. It brings great grief. You see that in verse 18? Much grief. You see, what it reveals in all of our academic pursuits, and we can learn so much, is that you have an awareness of just how much you don't know. And that you can't, in the pursuit of academic understanding, of improving your intellect, answer the most fundamental questions of why you're here, what you're to do with your life, where to truly find significance and purpose. I mean, think of it. We are the most educated of societies. Every year we pass out thousands of their earned degrees, PhDs, master degrees, uh, law degrees. We have more medical doctors, but they don't have, by virtue of getting these degrees and all this education, they do not have purpose, identity. Now, don't get me wrong. Improving your mind, academics, really important. If you're like here and you're a student, you're like, this is great. I really hope my parents are listening. I just heard it. I just read it. This has become my favorite section of the Bible here. Going to school is useless. It doesn't make any sense. It, uh, I hope my parents are taking notes. No, I want you to know there is so much to be gained. There is so much for you. There is nothing wrong. In fact, I'd encourage you. You want to be a growth mindset, learn everything you can kind of person, but take note. Apart from fearing God, 
Acquiring wisdom will not ultimately satisfy your soul. Now, we got a lot of folks trying this out. Oh, I just get smarter and smarter and more degrees and stuff like that. I will get it. Somehow well, I will arrive. I'll have that sense of peace and identity. And I want you to know the smartest guy in the world tried that out. Just read his conclusion. Why don't you take him at his word? It simply didn't work. For all of our knowledge and progress in technology, we sure have a lot of absence of security, identity, and peace. It's kind of like this. I mean, apart from really knowing relationship with God, even our best scientists and professors, they're like mice running around inside a piano. They're investigating the pedals and the, and the strings, and they're looking at how these hammers, and they're trying to figure it all out. And we can make all sorts of astute observations but if you don't see how this relates to the living God, it's like you're missing the musical score that's above on the piano. And it just doesn't make sense. I want you to know, like Josh McDowell, that Christian apologist, he'd go around to universities and he'd make this statement. If education was the key to life, then universities would be the most moral, ethical and spiritual centers in any nation. Is that true? I mean, when we go to, when you go to university campuses, you find these just a beacons of, man, this is arrived. We have contentment. There is ethical, moral development. This is a, a, just a wellspring of spiritual life. Is that the case? I mean, even look at some of our really good universities. I mean, that, that started out, we're, we're going to train pastors and missionaries. We're going to send them to the ends of the earth. And I'm talking about Harvard, Yale, Princeton. That was their stated reason for being. That's why they were developed. Are these beacons of life and spiritual vitality, of security, identity, and peace? Far from it. Friends, that's because there is a big difference between information and transformation. You can pursue information and academics and intellectual pursuits as hard as you can, but it cannot deliver. Solomon says, I gave it my best shot, and it fails you. In fact, it leads to a lot of pain. So then he says, you know what? It's not intellectualism, and I tried it. Life under the sun, in order to find meaning, it's got to be in hedonism. It's got to be in the pursuit of pleasure as the highest good and the proper aim for life. And so verses 1 through 3 and at the end of verse 8, you see that he gives himself fully to this pursuit of pleasure, hedonism at its fullest. So he says, chapter 2, verse 1, I said to myself, come now. I will test you with pleasure. So he says that this is like a literary device. It's like literally you see his thought process. You know, listen, I'm going to test you, your body, your mind, your emotion with everything possible with pleasure. So enjoy yourself. I'm telling you, man, make the most of it. And yet verse one in chapter two and behold, it too was futility. I said of laughter. It's madness and a pleasure. What does it accomplish? And I explored with my mind how to stimulate my body with wine while my mind was guiding me wisely and how to take hold of folly until I could see what good that it is for the sons of men to do under heaven the few years of their lives. And so he gives himself fully. I mean, can't you see it? It's kind of like this 10th century BC equivalent of like Caesar's palace, man. He's got lights everywhere. He's got music. He's got sound and it is wild and is out of control. He is giving himself fully to pleasure. He's trying to do everything he can to make himself happy. And he's like, you know, I've got all these sensual experiences going on here, but I need, I need, I need somebody funny here. 
I'm going to turn this place into Comedy Central. And so he does. And he explores laughter and madness and folly. And he just says, listen, it's, what does it accomplish? This whole pursuit of laughter, it's, it doesn't yield the results. Pleasure. What does it accomplish? I mean, I don't know if the comedians they had back then are as bad as some of the ones we got here. But do you really think what we got rolling on TV, our great comics, do you really think they got life figured out and they're just experiencing all sorts of joy and peace and security? No, all you have to do is read an interview or two and you discover that it's far from the case. They can keep you laughing maybe at 11 o'clock, but that's not who they really are and that's not the story of their life. And so Solomon's going, man, I tried all this thing, but I need to kick this into a whole other gear. I need to exponentially improve upon pleasure. And so what he's going to do is he's like, I'm, I'm going to introduce alcohol into this whole situation because remember, alcohol makes everything better, right? And that's what he's thinking. I'm going to introduce alcohol to this situation. And so you see what he says in verse 3? I explored with my mind. So he's like, I'm, I want you to be fully engaged with my mind to stimulate my body with wine while my mind was guiding me wisely. So I'm going to go on this rampant wild trip. I'm going to try to keep my mind and the faculties somewhat engaged and how to take hold of folly. I want to see if there's any good that comes out of it. Because, you know, after all, I mean, you see some of these people and they don't really take life too seriously, but they're just kind of drinking their way in oblivion and they seem to be doing all right. Maybe the answer is there. So he takes hedonism there. So he tries all this wild and see where it leads into and you know this same pursuit of pleasure hedonism man this has got our culture by the throat i mean you cannot watch even a half of a football game without seeing look how much fun you can have with alcohol this will make you look queer, uh, really cool and this is going to give you kind of that idea that Man, you've arrived because you've got this. And if you want this kind of lifestyle and you want these kind of people to be hanging out with you, then you need this kind of alcoholic beverage in your hand. The college campuses today, they have parties. I tell you what, those parties are oftentimes just this binge of drinking. Many college students that go to a party like that, they feel absolutely naked if they don't have some sort of alcoholic beverage in their hand. And that trend just continues into adults. You know, and they kind of move on and they get a job. They, alcohol is so prevalent. We spend billions of dollars in an alcohol industry. It's all part of this pursuit of pleasure. And he's, Solomon says, you know, listen, man, I gave myself fully to it. I even took notes while I did it. It's like Solomon pursued pleasure like a lab rat in a maze of madness looking for cheese. He's just running around. And I want you to know he gave it everything he had. There was no limit to wine, women, and song. He had absolute resources available to him. And it didn't yield the kind of results he was looking for. I think we can understand that. Some of you, you may be actually the pursuit of pleasure right now. Some of you, this may have described last night. You're not actually even sure how you got here. And there's two of me standing up here. I want to thank you for being here. But I want you to know there's an emptiness in your soul and you know it. Solomon experienced this on a firsthand basis. And we know, so maybe it's not alcohol, but you're just like, man, it's just all about college sports. And if I can just watch that 24-7, and if I, or if I go on the perfect vacation, or I have the perfect home, or I do all these things, I just want sensual pleasure Friends, it cannot satisfy, but the world's ideal says, turn me into an idol. Give me a good shot. And Solomon says, I, I did it. And it failed me royally. 
Well, he pursued intellectualism and hedonism. So he tried another one of the world's ideals, and that is careerism and its second cousin, materialism. Careerism has the idea that the pursuit of professional advancement is one's chief aim, regardless of the cost. In case you're thinking like, this this doesn't talk about me. Oh, no. Careerism defines many Americans. Many men and women are driven by their careers, no matter what the cost. They just try to mitigate that. Like, I don't want to think about that and all that I'm doing in my family or whatever. No, 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 no. I'm just thinking about me and my career. And materialism has the idea. It's the doctrine that material possessions and physical comfort are the most important pursuit in your life. And as we look at this in chapter 2, verses 4 through like the first half of verse 8, I want you to see if you can find a key phrase or a key word as to materialism and careerism. What drives it? Pay real close attention. Verse 4. I enlarged my works. I built houses for myself. I planted vineyards for myself. I made gardens and parks for myself. And I planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. And I made ponds of water for myself from which to irrigate a forest of growing trees. Okay, you, you see that? I mean, it's all about me, me, me. I bought male and female slaves, and I had homeborn slaves, and I possessed flocks and herds larger than all who preceded me in Jerusalem. Do you notice that key phrase? For myself. I, I try to make that very evident. Everybody got that, right? Okay. Friends, when it's all about you, materialism, careerism, makes a lot of sense. C.S. Lewis was asked uh, following a lecture, a series of questions, and one really good question. The question was this. Which of the world's religions gives its followers the greatest happiness? And C.S. Lewis paused, and this is what he said. While it lasts, the religion of worshiping oneself is best. While it lasts, it's the best. You see, if you want instant but very short-term happiness, create a religion that focuses on you and what you want. And that's exactly what Solomon did. You know, I did all this. He, I mean, houses, vineyards. He had sheep, pastures, you need water, create some lakes. He did it all. He provided all of these things But he didn't do it for God. I'm doing this for the glory of God. He didn't do it for the people of Jerusalem. He did it for number one. Who? Himself. And I'll tell you, Solomon has gone down as perhaps one of the greatest builders of all time in any era. I mean, Solomon's temple. Solomon's temple was considered one of the absolute wonders of the world. It was uh, just amazingly beautiful. It took seven years to build, 153,000 people to do it. But, you know, he's like, wow, I'm really good at these things. I need to build a house for me. I got a house for God. So he spent 13 years on his house, right? And he taxed the people and he had them build these wonderful structures. And, you know, he, these gardens, kings got into gardens. Like when we've done our discovery, like in Babylon and archaeology, you see like these hanging gardens of Babylon, how very important they were to kings. And he's like, man, I'm going to have my own little garden of Eden right here. I'll build it. I've got people. I've got servants. I got slaves, male and female. And it was an important status symbol when they were they were born in your home. And then he says, you know, verse eight, man, I, I had it all. Look at this. Verse eight. Also, I collected for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. It was said that in the time of Solomon that silver and gold were as common as stones. 
So you got a little decorative rock in your backyard, you know, those little rocks, like, isn't that cool? Can you imagine if it was like silver and gold? That's what it was like in Solomon's time. He had tribute coming, people that, people that he had conquered. You had taxes coming in. He was already overtaxing the people. Uh, he had folks like the Queen of Sheba coming and bringing in great gifts and artwork and stuff like that. He said, I had it all. But I want you to know, it didn't satisfy. And then at the end of verse 8, he actually then like slips back into hedonism. So he's been looking at materialism and careerism. And he slips back into hedonism because, you see, his wealth funded his pursuit of pleasure. He says, man, I had it all and I collected all these things. I was so important. I gave myself to my career. It was all for me. I didn't care about my family. It was all for me. And then look at verse 8. And I provided for myself male and female singers and the pleasures of men, many concubines. He's like, man, I, I'm into music. So like I had music whenever I wanted. I didn't need no smartphone with some earphones. You know, like, no, I didn't need that because if I wanted music, I like sing. And I had the best that the world had to offer. I mean, if I was going to run laps, I could have people singing me around the track. If I want to hang out in my palace, if I wanted music, I could have it. I want to change the station. I just get the next band up here. I mean, he had it all. And when it came, then he says, you know, I got music. He says, you know, I also want you to know that I've tested myself fully in the area of sexual pleasure. Not only have all these singers, but I had the pleasures of men, many concubines. We talked about this last week. First Kings chapter 11, verse 3. One of the more disturbing verses in the Bible. Solomon had 700 wives, 300 concubines. Concubine, which remember, a woman attached to this guy, Solomon. Legal status, but far less than a wife. Oftentimes, some bad things happen in these kind of relationships. 700 wives, 300 concubines. He says these are the pleasures of men. You think like, wow, you got 1,000 women. Well, that certainly should have satisfied your quest for joy and happiness, right? Well, it sure ended his close relationship with God. It didn't lead to meaning and significance. It left him empty, frustrated, delusioned. I tell you, I want to address this issue because we live in a sex-saturated society. The prevalent thought is that sex is the highway to happiness and fulfillment. And it just, just what's important is that you just have yourself in all sorts of relationships. The, any structure of this whole idea of marriage and all that sort of stuff, that's nonsense. It's to give yourself to pleasure, hedonism. And I just want you to know that this abuse leads to misery and destruction. Yeah, the society says, oh, you want to be fulfilled? This is the way. I want you to know this is the way to destroy your life. I tell you verses 7 and 8 here in Ecclesiastes they are deeply troubling verses to me and I'm going to tell you why when materialism and hedonism reign in a human heart people become dehumanized and they're viewed merely as objects for production or for one's self-centered pleasure that's what happens when careerism materialism hedonism takes over people just get used you want to you want to understand our culture how is it that we can have a multi-million dollar porn porn industry how can how is it that we can have 
music and movies that just seem to continually just saturate the minds of countless students, children, men and women that sex is where it's at. I'll tell you, apart from a committed covenant relationship in between a man and a woman in marriage, sex is destructive. You try to create like an idol out of it. You make a little G.O.D. out of the pursuit of sexual pleasure apart from marriage. And you're going to find that it is like a demon and it is going to destroy you. It'll distort and it will contort you. It will lead not to fulfillment, but a loss of respect, a loss of integrity, a loss of really appreciating and enjoying others and a loss of a relationship. It'll hollow you out like unlike pretty much anything that is out there. There was an uh, interview, July 17, 2007, on the 700 Club, where they, interested, uh, they interviewed Susan Craybaker. She is a former Playboy Playmate in the Playboy magazine. And they interviewed this gal. She, she talks about when she was eight years old, she, she gave her life to Jesus and trusted in Christ. But then she also talked about all the just horrific sexual abuse that she received as a young girl. She talked about her desire to want to die as a child as a result of this horrific sexual abuse. How this kind of led into promiscuity and how she eventually ends up in the Playboy Mansion where she lives for 10 years. And she talked about like, you know, she was pretty sure that God would close the doors and there would never be an opportunity for her to ever come back to Jesus. She was blown away by the grace and the mercy and the forgiveness and the cleansing and the newness of life and the hope that's found in Jesus. Today she's married. She and her husband have a ministry to children in Haiti. But in this interview, she said this about her life in the Playboy Mansion. When you go down that road, sex becomes less and less satisfying and more and more perverse. And then it finally becomes utterly worthless. It doesn't mean anything to anyone. And Solomon found that out to be oh so true. That's why he gives the bottom line conclusion. Look at verses 9 through 11. The counterfeit ideals of the world can never, never satisfy the longing of your heart. Look at verse 9. Then I became great and increased more than all who preceded me in Jerusalem. My wisdom also stood by me. I did all this stuff, I took notes. Verse 10, all that my eyes desired, I did not refuse them. I did not withhold my heart from any pleasure, for my heart was pleased because of all my labor. And this was my reward for all my labor. I mean, when I got stuff, when I did stuff, I mean, there was a certain amount of pleasure that actually comes for accomplishing things, but then it was all gone. Verse 11, thus I considered all my activities, which my hands had done and the labor which I had exerted. And behold, all was vanity, meaningless, futile. Striving after wind, and there was no profit under the sun. I had it all. Homes, cars, employees, 401ks, IRAs. I, I had it all. And then a life under the sun, pursuing these ideals, is absolutely vain. Why is that? Why is that the case? I mean, millions of people, this, these ideals are their idols, and they are driving their behavior. And some of them are in churches. Don't get the idea like, oh, you know. If I become a Christian or I just show up at a church, I will escape those things. No, no. This has got a lot of Christians by the throat. Why is it that they simply cannot satisfy? And that is because this. 
When you are seeking pleasure, when it's all about you and your career or your things or how just smart you can be or how many degrees you can get after your name, all of that is a selfish endeavor and selfishness destroys true joy. You might want to write that down because it could save your marriage or relationship with your kids. Selfishness destroys true joy. Solomon had experienced that point of the law of diminishing returns, man. The more he tried it, the less satisfied. I need more and more and more. And that's what happens. I mean, you got folks that they get involved in drugs. I had one gal tell me, I, listen, it has destroyed my life, but I still do it and it has no effect on me. That's what the ideals of the world do. Listen, when the idols of the world, you know what they do? They cause you to love experiences and things and to use people. That's what happens. Like Derek Kidner, an Old Testament uh, scholar, said this, quote, What spoils the pleasures of life for us is our hunger to get out of them more than they can ever deliver. Getting eternal and ultimate meaning out of temporal and temporary pursuits is destined to fail. There's nothing wrong with having a career, having pleasure, uh, having things. There's nothing wrong to expanding your mind. All of these things can be good, but if they're done outside the context of a relationship with the living God, they are going to destroy you. That is probably what's going on with a lot of hearts distorted, contorted, that doesn't make sense. And yet we keep going after because that's what the world is pushing. Frankly, there's not a lot of churches that are telling you that's not the right way. But God says through his word, friends, Solomon gave him everything he had and it doesn't work. And yet we got thousands of billboards and TV ads that are saying, no, no, no. You just stay on the path, stay on the track. Don't get off it. And it's leading to destruction. It's kind of like that donkey with that carrot on the stick. And that donkey kind of keeps looking at that carrot like, Boy, that looks really good. Like it. It's orange, you know? And so he takes a step forward, and lo and behold, that carrot just keeps staying right in front of him. It's kind of moving. Come get me, get me. And we keep doing this thing, and the donkey keeps moving forward, but he never gets the carrot. Friends, that's the ideals of the world. Keep moving forward. Oh, you don't have enough of it. You need to try more of this. And it simply doesn't satisfy. Do you remember that verse, verse 15, chapter 1, where it says that what is crooked cannot be straightened, and what is lacking cannot be counted? I want you to know that's absolutely true in life under the sun, with one exception, Jesus Christ. When Jesus came to the earth, he took that which was crooked, and he made it straight. And all that lacked fulfillment, he added the fullness of life. See, Jesus offers what you and I really need. You and I, we can't change our past. That'd be nice, but you can't, right? But what Jesus offers is that he changes how the past affects us. All of your sin and the, and the issues that you cause and the problems, let's see what Jesus can do about the crooked and the perverse. And look how he brings fullness and straightens things. For all these times we've given ourselves to pursuit and we've got the consequences to bear for it in our life, look what Jesus does. Changes hearts, makes them testimonies of his grace these are the things that only God can do. You see, the ideals of the world, you pursue them, they become idols, there's always consequences. They can't fulfill. And the object of our faith determines the devotion of our life. And do not be deceived. Idols are never idle. They are always, they just keep calling for the affections of your heart. And so what Jesus is saying is, you really want life? 
Are you done with intellectualism and materialism and hedonism and careerism? You come to me and let's get these things in the right perspective. But I want you to have life. Remember what Jesus said, John 10, 10. The thief comes only to steal, kill and destroy. But I came that they might have life and have it abundantly. Satan, he uses the world's ideals and it leads to destruction. That's what he's all about. But Jesus, he's about life, fullness of life. You want it? It's found in trusting him. That's why you and I must intentionally, daily learn to focus and find Jesus to be our hope and strength. I find when I wake up that my soul is cool toward God. I wish I jumped out of bed and like, oh man, can't wait to worship, but it doesn't work that way. Maybe it works for you, but I'm just telling you where I'm at. What I need to do is direct my heart back to God. Because after all, that's where meaning, purpose, identity, love is found. The counterfeits of the world can never replace communion with God. I'm sure you've run across a guy by the name of Blaise Pascal. Uh, he was really without equal. Brilliant French thinker, scientist, mathematician, and inventor. When this kid, he's just a little boy in Paris. This guy is brilliant. So what they did is the French put him in their academy of science where he mingled with the greatest intellects of the day. And he astounded his professors on how smart he was. Get this, if you think you're a teenager and you can't do much, age 15, he's writing books and developing theorems that left his professors shaking their heads. Uh, as a teenager, these are some things that he invented or discovered. Like he invented history's first digital calculating machine. He, uh, his discoveries led to the invention of the barometer, the vacuum pump, the air compressor, the syringe, and the hydraulic press. And yet, as he was growing up, he found that life, even though everything he, ha he had everything going for him and all of what France had to offer, he found them to be completely inadequate. Nothing would satisfy his soul. And one night, he picked up a Bible, and he started reading in John 17, and when he came to verse 3, he describes it as like a spark that leads to a fire. He read John 17, verse 3, and this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. And he says, instantly, my soul was just embraced by Christ. He wanted to capture this. I mean, it, it's like, for the first time, he really understood the meaning of life is found in Christ. He started writing this down. He grabbed pen and parchment, and he writed snatches of his thoughts. In fact, here it is. Now, since we can't read that, let me give you the translation. In the year of grace, 1654, on Monday, 23rd of November, fire, God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob, not of the philosophers and scholars, certitude, certitude, feeling, joy, peace, joy, 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 tears of joy. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent, Jesus Christ. Let me never be separated from him. That piece of paper, that parchment, he carried, he had it sewn into the vest of his jacket so it would always be close to his heart. When he dies, that's when they discover this parchment because for him, that explains his life. It was all about proclaiming the greatness of God. It is this same Pascal that wrote this. There is a God-shaped vacuum in the heart of every man that cannot be filled by any created thing but by God alone made known through Jesus Christ. So friends, the counterfeits of this world can never replace communion with God. Let's pray. Lord, this is an amazing passage of Scripture. Right here, you, you give us in clear view the ideals of the world that fail. You point us to the God 
to you who always satisfies. So for someone who is here today who's never trusted Christ, and these ideals are their idols, would they forsake them now and say, Lord, you know about my sin, and I trust you this morning as Savior. Forgive me and lead me. And Lord, for all of us, would we fill with the goodness of you, would we know you and pursue you, May we see that life is really meant to be in communion with you for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.